Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, guten Abend, meine Damen und Herren. And welcome to the first Intelligence Square debate here in Germany, in the gorgeous city of Berlin, where everywhere you look reminds you of history. And of course, it was out of the ashes of World War II, the horrors um, of the Second World War, that the, year of, that the idea of European unity uh, was born. And Europe can now look back at decades of peace, something that it's managed to deliver to the people of Europe, countries that used to be bitter enemies, um, being able to work side by side. But what about the modern European Union? And that's what we're here to talk about tonight. Is the EU failing the citizens of Europe? Now, of course, it depends on your point of view, and that's where this um, panel um, will come in. Um, but if we look back even just 12 months ago, um, the EU was not in a particularly happy place. So uh, the UK had just voted... Uh, to leave the EU, and up until then, the EU was um, a union that had only been growing. So at the point of the Brexit vote, the EU was already reeling from other crises, the migrant crisis, uh, the euro crisis. You had the increasing influence of uh, eurosceptic populists across the continent. Whereas now, where we are right at this moment, the EU is feeling a lot better about itself. If you look at public opinion polls, more Europeans are saying that they have increasing confidence in the EU. You saw Eurosceptic populists beaten uh, at the polls in the Netherlands, in Austria, and most recently in France. The migrant crisis, ask Italy, it's not over, um, but it's no longer the existential immediate crisis that it was for the EU um, back in 2015. And the Eurozone um, is doing a lot better as well. So is that it? Is that all doing uh, well now? We're not talking anymore about Frexit or Dexit or Italexit. Um, are the divisions in the Eurozone between North and South, are they healed? The political divisions between East and West, that's of course what, uh, what we'll be looking at tonight. So just to give you an idea of how the proceedings will go, when you came in, you took part uh, in a pre-vote, whether you agree or disagree with the motion, and I'll be telling you the results of that um, in a minute. Um, at the end, once you've heard uh, from the speakers, uh, they've talked to you, you've asked them questions, you'll have a chance uh, to vote uh, again. You'll see that there was a paper on your, um, on your chair, which you can tear in half, choosing whether you're for or against. And if you've no idea and we've completely confused you, just put the whole uh, ticket um, uh, in the box. So um, before we um, hand over to you um, and to hear your questions, um, we're going to hear for our speakers for and against the motion, the EU is failing Europe's citizens. Each speaker is to speak for um, around eight or nine minutes, and um, I'm instructed, this is not my own rudeness, to 
clink loudly, as loudly as I can, um, if, if they're going over time. So forgive me in advance. Um, our first speaker uh, for the motion um, is Calypso Nicolaides. If I could ask you, please, uh, Calypso, to take uh, to the podium. Profe um, professor Nicolaides is a professor of international relations and director of the Centre of International Studies at the University of Oxford. She's also a member of the European Council on Foreign Relations and has served as an advisor on European <coughs> affairs to the Greek, the Dutch, the UK governments, the European Parliament, the European Commission and the OECD. Um, and she's now crowdfunding a book um, about Brexit with um, Unbound.com. You are part Greek, part French, you've got Spanish roots, and you refer to the EU as a dysfunctional family, but one that you can't walk out on. Indeed. Katya, thank you. And we're here to talk about this dysfunctional family Intelligence Square Friends from Berlin. Intelligence Square Friends. Let me appeal to start with to your hearts. With the story of Yorgos, who ran an iron-mongering factory in my family's town in the north of Greece. And when the crisis hit and the local demand for fences and stuff start, started to dry up, uh, the ironmonger and his 50 employees, you know, started working longer hours and exporting further in Europe. But as the crisis continued, Jorgos lost access to capital, contrary to his competitors, like here in Germany. And so he had to let go a few more employees every year until he ended up closing down the ironmongering family, selling his house um, and, and just uh, leaving the town. So, I know, I know, you're going to say, I know what you're thinking, this is not the EU's fault, is it? You know, the plight of the Greeks are of their own making. Yorgos should have held his corrupt leaders to account. And anyway, tough luck, this is Schumpeterian creative destruction at its best. Uh, well, Christo, my friend, and I will try to convince you otherwise. Sure, the EU may not have failed you, my intelligence squared in the, friends in the room, um, or Erasmus Kiss, bankers, or British retirees in Alicante, and I'm sure that uh, Nick and uh, Joseph will add to the list for you in a moment. But I say that the EU has failed too many of its citizens, it has filled Jorgos and his employees, his town, all the young unemployed and uprooted Greeks, including here and in my, in my country of residence, and all their mates from Spain and across Europe. And it has failed me, Franco-German and Franco-Greek, but also German-European, who, while campaigning passionately for Remain last year, struggle when asked by well-meaning Brits, you know, but do you like what the EU is doing to your countrymen? What could I say? It was very embarrassing. Now, sure, the failure, like the solutions, start at home, right? This is a message we heard, well, today from Angela launching her campaign, or yesterday from Emmanuel in Versailles. Uh, but the EU is the sum of its member states above all. And you know, in its history with Katya recounted uh, a, a minute ago, it was always meant to tame the pathologies 
of its member state, not feed them. So Yorgos' fate was not preordained by some sort of capitalist ruthlessness, really, but also followed from the EU's structural flaws, which actually, unfortunately, have been amplified by this crisis and have not left us. So allow me to illustrate for these few minutes under three labels, power, justice, and politics. So as the G20 meets in this town this weekend, let's start with power. That's what we teach about in IR in Oxford. Well, you know, asymmetries of power are a fact of life, aren't they? Um, especially among nations. And Germany's hegemony, don't worry, is okay with us because it's so reluctant to be an hegemon. But, but wasn't the EU's original promise to mitigate this asymmetry of powers, to create a continent of quasi-equals? See, the management of the crisis has failed many of the weak and smaller EU countries, but also more deeply, citizens who suffer from weak state, weak rule of law, weak public spirit. Pistos will say more in a minute. And at the same time, and this is a paradox, ladies and gentlemen, the crisis has helped also helped render power even more invisible in the EU by hiding it, like in Harry Potter, under a cloak of over-formalized legal requirement where deviant behavior is just illegal. That's it. It's not a political thing. So Greece's Alpha Bank cannot lend to other Yorgoses because they are too much of a risk, say, EU monitors lurking in each of the little offices in the island as if there were no competent Greeks to make this judgment. And this is a true story. I've witnessed it. Which brings me to our second rubric, after power politics, after power justice, before politics. Since John Rawls, allow me for a moment as a good old academic, John Rawls' brilliant theory of justice, scholars, we've asked how his suggestion that we you know, hide behind a veil of ignorance to ask what ought to be done for justice in our countries, how this can be translated for justice across countries. Vaste question. I would say, in France. But let me simply say this. EU institutions have been at best indifferent to what we can call the EU's justice deficit. See, surplus Germany, as we like to call you guys, well, not you guys, you know, your country, uh, may be a reluctant hegemon, but the EU has allowed it to behave as a selectively autistic hegemon too. Uh, who fails to open the black box of other member states and ask how do the conditions that we, well, the EU institutions, set contribute to the unfair distribution of pain inside our member states, say Greece or elsewhere? How does the unprecedented private wealth of our era square with the pace, not the fact, the pace of the budget cut which we impose? And of course, you Germans can ask, where is the EU when Italians for cry for help with their refugees these days, at the same time as Austrian lines up its soldiers on its borders? So, our Jorgos, you know, he's paying for the long durée, the incremental buildup of a clientelistic Greek state, absolutely. But this state was propped up over the last decades by EU-enabled Vultures, all too happy to buy one or two islands in the process. 
Katya, you'll allow me a few uh, hyperbolic statements, will you? Um, so, last but not least, in the end, the EU is failing too many of its citizens because it's denying the oxygen that makes it possible to live together in freedom. What is this oxygen? Politics, of course, or at least meaningful politics. We have a brilliant example here of a politician who gives it to us, but Yorgos was told that whoever he voted for in Greece would not make a damn difference for the EU, remember? Sure, the kind of democratic interdependence ushered in by European integration does mean that he or Yorgos is pitted against an equally respectable citizens from Budapest or Berlin, right? But grant me this, ladies and gentlemen, These citizens, us, we, may be invoked, but we're not asked about decisions made far away from us in rooms uh, of which we know nothing. Uh, you do not need to believe in the wickedness of what Varoufakis calls Europe's deep establishment. And the guy is too fond for hyperbolic statements even for me, don't worry. Um, But you don't need to invoke them to recognize that the way the EU works, one more minute, is to enable the political, it was pre one minute, to enable the political class across Europe to collude in a kind of Faustian bargain by exchanging hard sell at the national level for preemptive constitutionalism at the EU level. Remember how B. Weber, even him, feared that his beloved bureaucracy would be become an iron cage, where with Brussels we have a kind of funny iron cage in a bubble. And in this bubble we have civil servants with their messianic zeal that have made the EU safe not only for, but from democracy. A la Brecht, you know, when they don't like the people, they wonder, couldn't we re-elect the people? So, which brings me in closing to Nick and mine countries of origin. I can't help Katya mention Brexit. You can't dismiss it for British eccentricity, you know, because it's a brute fact that speaks loud and clear to us, ladies and gentlemen. See, British leavers, aside from a chunk of them that are hardcore nationalists, they, they speak for many in the EU who feel left behind economically and politically. For them, voting against London and Brussels is part of the same package. And I say, EU decisions makers cannot forever take refuge in the belief that this unprecedented revolt that we've seen across the continent is simply part of, you know, the false consciousness of the oi polloi, beset but, and, and annoyingly failing to acknowledge that technocrats are here to deliver public goods, which precisely because they are public, cannot be left to the public's whims. Leave it to them. So, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to believe in tough love, to agree with Socrates that we must all be skeptics, Euro or otherwise, I believe in a third way for Europe, which enhances national but altruistic democracies. And I will call this a democracy. And I submit to you that it is by recognizing that the EU is failing too many of its citizens that we have any chance of recasting its great original promised in 21st century language, technology, internet, not only for our sake in this room, but for the sake, please, of our children's children. Thank you.
Our first speaker against the motion, thank you very much, is Josef Janning, Senior Policy Fellow and Director of the Berlin Office for the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's advised the German government on European affairs, particularly with a view to German foreign policy and EU policy and integration. You are a leading uh, political scientist and researcher in Germany and a regular contributor to German and international media. And I saw with interest that your profile on Twitter describes you as a passionate and mostly upbeat analyst on all things European at home and in the world. Yeah, Thank you very much. The good thing about Twitter is that you can actually write that yourself. Uh, So there's no need for somebody else to say that. I could could say that myself. and then it gets quoted, uh, which, is, which is good. Now, uh, that side of the room that has no direct exposure to sunlight has been warmed up by Calypso's mentioning of Yorgos and his poor fate. But I think, you know, if you, if you uh, think back of her speech, you will find that the more great names and great minds you need to quote, the weaker your argument probably is. Uh, I have to say that, uh, Calypso, in all fairness... Uh, I think part of the problem with the argument uh, the other side is making that it needs to exaggerate what the EU is. Now think of when Calypso spoke about the EU's role to to cure the pathologies of nation-states. Now I submit to you that the EU is a much more earthly thing, is a much more practical uh, institution than, than it is often portrayed. And let me make three points in order to substantiate my argument. First, the EU doesn't fail its citizens because it doesn't have citizens. Member states have citizens. The EU doesn't have any. Yes, there are. There's wording in the treaties that grants a citizenship. But can you be a citizen of the European Union without being a citizen of member states? No, you can't. If you could, that would offer a nice opt-out option uh, to the Brits. But they can't. You know, they can't claim their European EU citizenship uh, and kind of take their country to court for wanting to leave the European Union. Not possible. Because the EU essentially is a service provider. Is a service provider to member states. And it has been constructed as one. Of course it has been decorated with all sorts of historical language uh, and analogies. But essentially, it is to help member states deliver on their essential uh, 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 promise to their own citizens. That is to be secure and prosperous. And it does that only insofar as member states feel they have no choice but to employ this technical agency of the European Union in order to achieve uh, that goal. So the EU compensates for the weaknesses and deficiencies of member states and lets them shine in front of citizens. And I think it is quite miraculous how it takes, continuously takes the blame. You know, for everything that goes wrong, that's Brussels, of course. You know, and you see the technocrats taking that. Uh, you know, but essentially they say, after this is our role, what can we do? Now, In that function and role, that's my second argument, the EU has been a rather useful and helpful um, uh, actor to citizens because member states wanted it to be that way or it was a collateral 
to their to member states other goals such as economic growth that the EU actually has opened more opportunities and more choices to citizens than we would see without the EU to citizens as employees uh, or as uh, consumers as students or pensioners uh, Calypso had mentioned that already you know as people living in the peripheries or less advantaged regions the EU has actually delivered to them because member states had agreed that it should do so. And that leads me to the third part of the answer. There is, however, a bit of an, kind of a, a, a systemic spillover um, uh, into this, and that is the EU actually, without member states necessarily wanting or willing it, um, protects its citizens uh, quite well, you know, given that it is a technical agency. I'd say at least it tries as good as it can uh, to, to, to protect their rights. Uh, you know, the, the EU itself is obliged to respect the rights of the citizens of EU member states and not interfere with their rights. The EU watches over the compliance of state actors and business actors with these rights and rules. The EU can take member states to court but it doesn't take citizens to court. Well, I think that's, that's quite a remarkable uh, thing. The EU has minimum standards uh, for product safety or uh, annual leave that it watches over. Um, it is responsible for, for uh, supervising the non-discrimination in the workplace of people. All of these are protective layers of EU policy. And after all, it at least tries to protect citizens' democratic uh, norms and rule of law in their member states, sometimes against the government of member states. I find that a quite remarkable achievement of European integration, even though I'm quite sure that if member states had been asked whether the EU should do that, they would have said no on many cases, but they agreed only to it for the general broader good of using the, the collective framework uh, for the common purposes. So the EU, and that's my final point, the EU even gives a court to citizens. You can, as a European citizen, take your member state or take business actors, uh, others, to court uh, for the protection of your own rights and individual uh, freedoms. So given that the citizens are not really theirs, I think the EU has done a remarkably good job. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Joseph Janning, thank you very much. Our second speaker for the motion is Risto Ivanov, Bulgarian lawyer and politician, the current leader of the opposition movement Yes Bulgaria, former deputy prime minister of Bulgaria and minister of justice. You resigned um, as minister of justice in December 2015 after the Bulgarian parliament blocked legislation for justice reform. You are a passionate campaigner um, for an independent judiciary in Bulgaria and for an end to corruption in Bulgaria. And you've been very critical of the EU's lack of action regarding the rule of law, not just in Bulgaria, but in Poland and Hungary as well. Thank you so much. Um, Today, the square is empty. I understand it's empty because of the visit of the sublime technocrat, the Chinese president. And I remember it like this from my childhood. The first time I was visiting Berlin, I was a kid uh, from the People's Republic of Bulgaria, then still a communist state. And it was uh, an empty, electrifying space because you could actually see the wall just behind the, the, the door here. And you could actually feel... The, uh, the being unable to cross this, uh, this space and go to the other half of the continent. So I think this is the perfect setting for, for, this, uh, for this argument. And I think what we're seeing here is a shift in positions. Uh, we, with Calypso, are going to argue of the, for the European Union of the citizens, a family. And we just heard about the European Union without citizens. It's like this empty square. Uh, that is emptied for the, for the benefit of the Chinese technocrat. Um, let me also start with a, with, a, with a story. It is going to be a story of 20 judges. Two years ago, 20 judges from the biggest court in, in Sofia and in Bulgaria came before the Supreme Judicial Council, the body that is uh, authorized to run the judiciary, to say there is corruption in our court. Our court is mismanaged, and behind this mismanagement there is a pattern of organized systemic corruption. They were not here, heard. Not only that, they were punished by uh, attempts to start disciplinary measures against them. The claims of corruption was put under the carpet by the Supreme Judicial Council and the Prosecutor General. But two months later, in the press, 
recordings of conversations between the president of the court and uh, another judge uh, who is helping, was helping her in organizing uh, corruption started to surface, detailing their connections to the prime minister, to the uh, members of the Supreme Judicial Council, to the uh, prosecutor general, to media moguls, to bankers, all people that were interested in, in continuation of this corruption in the, the largest uh, court. There were calls, including by the then uh, Justice Minister, uh, me, for uh, thorough investigation of, of these uh, recordings, but there was no investigation. There was no way the Prosecutor General was going to investigate himself or the Prime Minister. I resigned, but the minority in the Supreme Judicial Council, made of six brave men and women, led by the uh, President of the Supreme Court of Cassation of Bulgaria, Mr. Uzampanov, continued to insist on accountability of the prosecution office on checks of high-level corruption. These people are harassed by vehement media campaign uh, in Bulgaria. They are threatened. These threats escalated lately by a show uh, when they were coming to a session of the Supreme Judicial Council to ask for yet another investigation that never happened, they were um, greeted there by six men, equaling their number, with masks, holding bloody animal heads. That was a pretty ugly scene and a pretty ugly message to all those that are demanding justice. In this two-year period, we have had a number of demonstrations by citizens demanding rule of law, demanding fighting corruption. We have had several demonstrations by judges marching to the streets in their gowns, in not asking for salaries, not asking for material conditions, asking for rule of law, asking for independence of their judiciary, of our judiciary. And the relevance of this story, which can go on and on, is that you may remember Bulgaria was placed under special supervision by the European Commission, one of the services that you were uh, referring to. The Commission was silent. The Commission ignores what is happening in, uh, in Bulgaria, and not just the Commission. The German political elite is all too happy to, to slap the shoulders of Borisov, the Prime Minister of Bulgaria, and other ministers just for, for the convenience of having another member of the European uh, People's Party uh, in, in power. I think this is a major failure, and it's just bigger than, than what is happening in, in Bulgaria. Although, you have to understand, this is what citizens believe the European Union to be. Bulgarians have a very strong support for the European uh, Union and for Bulgaria's belonging to the European Union. They have a very strong expectation of the European Union to, to be the guarantor of rule of law, of common standard, of uh, legality and of uh, in, uh, integrity, of the way power is exercised, exercised. This is larger than Bulgaria. It's larger, I think, than uh, what is happening in Hungary, what is happening in Poland, which is much the same. The big difference being that Bulgarian authorities are not making from their action a political program. They're not saying that they're building an illiberal democracy, as Orban would uh, do. Borisov would just act on it. 
He is not saying it. He is acting, I think, in, uh, in the actions of Bulgarian authorities. They've, been, they've gone, f- in some respects, farther than in Hungary or in, uh, in Poland. The failure of the European Commission to address these this situations of, of the Union, of, of the European political elites, I think is, is uh, really very concerning. Some have started to speak about corruption as the new communism, meaning the new systemic threat to the stability of institutions and the stability of the legal order um, of the continent. And um, I might agree with them, and I would like to say that um, corruption is not just about bribes, it's about eroding um, the expectation that they are going to be order and that they are going to be just order. And this is, I think, one of the reasons people really support the European Union, not so much the technocratic utopia that you're uh, describing. Because let's remember, after the Second World War, people were actually sitting, uh, seeking a, a, a transnational guarantee for these basic values, the rule of law, the human rights. And that's why a number of international and, and regional uh, organizations emerged. These are not services to the governments. These are vital interests to the citizens. And the European Union, if it fails to remember this, it is going to fail the citizens. And I think this is much more citizens than just Bulgarian or or Hungarian. And I want to connect this with the concern that I have over the multi-speed Europe conception that was, thank you, announced. The multi-speed Europe is, is reality. What I'm afraid of is that we are talking here not of multi-speed Europe, we are talking about multi-direction Europe. Some parts of the continent are going to continue into the direction of the ever closer union, and some are going to be left to their national kleptocracies to be stolen from this common family that I would argue for. So when we argue and ask you to support the, the motion, we ask you to support the family vision, the, the vision for Europe that is doing more for its citizens, not so much for the techno- uh, technocracy. Thank you very much. Hirsto Ivanov, thank you very much indeed. Our second speaker against the motion is Nick Clegg. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 2010 to 2015 in the David Cameron Coalition. Could I ask you, sir, to please take the podium? Um, Leader of the Liberal Democrats from 2007 to 2015. Member of Parliament from 2005 to 2017. And before that, an MEP uh, for five years. You're famous in the UK as being a passionate Europhile. Uh, You write and speak about the EU and about Brexit. Um, A voice or a noise that I think will get even louder as I hear that you're heading towards becoming a professional drummer too. Is that right? Mm. Yeah. Apparently not, so. relevant, not relevant to these proceedings. Now, look, I would ask all of you to ignore the seductive, tear-jerking tales we've heard from Calypso and Haristo. And, and they are. They are. They, are, they pull at my heartstrings. Of course they do. This poor chap in his business in northern Greece, the very, very compelling uh, argument Haristo made that uh, the European Union has not done enough to combat corruption in, in Bulgaria. Who wouldn't? Uh, make the entirely legitimate and, frankly, unsurprising claim that, of course, there are some citizens who legitimately feel failed by the European Union. I would feel that if I was living in an Italian or Greek community, confronting wave after wave of poor 
wretched, desperate refugees, not properly organised and administered because of the failure of the European Union to do so in the face of the Mediterranean refugee crisis. If I was an unemployed young Spaniard, feeling that the kind of the uh, Teutonic discipline of the uh, of the single currency was creating unnecessary unemployment in my own community, of course I would also feel that I'd been let down by the European Union. But that is an unsurprising observation to make. There isn't a decision-making institution. There isn't a political uh, arrangement. There isn't a government in the world that doesn't let down some of its citizens some of the time. But that's not what they're saying. What they're defending is not that some people might feel failed, because all political institutions are imperfect. The European Union, surprise, surprise, is imperfect. No. They are defending a motion which says that the European Union is failing its all citizens, you as well. Everybody has failed. So, under the camouflage of, these, of this excellent rhetoric, of these heart-wrenching tales, these two lovely, otherwise entirely civilised individuals, <laughs> superficially at least, are actually asking you to vote for the destruction of the European Union itself. And that is what is lurking. That is the dark secret within this proposition this evening. Not that it might fail some citizens here and there. Of course it might. They want to destroy the European Union, root it up from its very foundations. And that is what I want to spend a few minutes arguing against on three basic grounds. Geography, history and geopolitics. First, geography. I sometimes think that we do not remind ourselves enough what a cluttered, busy, curious patchwork of principalities, kingdoms, republics, democracies, monarch monarchical democracies, countries, regions, principalities, all of them, all of whom have different religions and histories and languages, the like of which doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Yeah, sure, you have, a, you have clusters of small countries in parts of Southeast Asia, parts of Africa, parts of Central America. But there is nowhere, nowhere in the world where compressed onto one landmass, with the exception of those curious islands, the United Kingdom and Ireland, uh, <laughs> compressed onto one landmass, there are so many peoples living cheek by jowl next to each other. And it is an extraordinary achievement that out of all of that diversity we've been able to create a common purpose. A common purpose which is essential if we are to deal with the cross-border challenges that we face in the globalised world of the 21st century. From climate change to cross-border crime, from trade talks to uh, globalised uh, finance. Second, history. The other thing that this marvellously diverse, cluttered, bewildering patchwork of nations has done in our geographical neck of the woods, over our history, is we have done sublime things. We've been the home for greater scientific inventions, greater cultural achievements, greater art, greater music, greater philosophy than any other part of the world, and yet we've also been home to some of the most brutal forms of barbarism, bloodshed and violence, again, seen anywhere else in the world. And that has driven us as peoples, citizens from all of those different countries, to do something quite extraordinary. To entrench a culture of political stability, of respect for minorities, of tolerance, of diversity, of pluralism, of a deep, deep instinct 
for the, for the values of, of democracy. And also, crucially, out of that extraordinary experience of some of the most sublime achievements and some of the most depraved, barbaric abuses, we have also distilled from our own history a unique balance in which we believe in free, dynamic markets, but we believe in social compassion as well. There is no other continent in the world which strikes that balance in the way that we do. And finally, third and finally, geopolitics. I am heartbroken, heartbroken as a dad, that as a father of three small boys aged 15, 13 and 8, they are citizens of a, of a country, the United Kingdom, which is going to yank itself out of this, yes, imperfect, yes, flawed, but extraordinary, extraordinary and unique uh, achievement of, of, uh, of transnational governments in, governance in the European uh, Union. But I'm especially heartbroken because when I think about the world they will inhabit, and I see that they will inhabit a world in which the, the technocrat who I think is arriving right now, look at all those cars, <laughs> Xi Jinping, And Prime Minister Modi will be the most powerful men on earth. Whilst America turns its attention away from its old Atlantic alliances towards the Pacific and under Donald Trump towards his Twitter feed. (laughs) It is all the more important that my children grow up in a continent which can stand on its own two feet and can take its own decisions. And can take its own decisions driven by that unique culture and geography and history that I alluded to earlier. So don't listen to these siren voices who want to throw this all away. Reject, reject what they are asking you to do and vote instead against the motion today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Nick Clegg. I'm hoping to get the result of uh, the pre-vote. Thank you very much. So, you voted before you, you heard these passionate words um, on either side, for and against the, uh, the motion. So, as you arrived, uh, 23% of you voted for the motion. So, agreeing that uh, the, the EU is failing the citizens of Europe. 46% of you voted against and 31% of you were undecided. That's a big lot of undecided. There's a lot to play for here, uh, debaters. So, right, roll up your sleeves. It's over to you. Please put up your hands if you have questions for our panel. Yeah. Hello, thanks so much. It's a really interesting debate. Thanks so much for, for the organisers for, for putting it on. My name's Hugh Williamson. I live in Berlin. I'm a British citizen who's also become German in the last year because of Brexit. <laughs> So I feel myself very much part of this debate. I have a very strongly, uh, strongly felt question for Mr. Clegg. I really enjoyed your passionate speech. Um, uh, I was moved by it. I believe in everything you said. And I, indeed, I admit I voted against the motion when I came in um, I, because I don't want to believe that the EU is failing uh, its citizens. However, the speech about Bulgaria and the other comments also moved me um, because I do believe... What was said about Bulgaria is absolutely right, and what's said about Hungary and Poland as well. The EU, for, for crass political reasons, as we heard, uh, alliances within the Europe, European People's Party, political deals being done, has stopped the European Commission um, and leading political parties taking action that was, has been extremely necessary against 
uh, the governments of Hungary and Poland and Bulgaria to rein in moves to, uh, to depart from European values and the rule of law within the European Union. And if that doesn't stop, then that will spread to other member states, I fear. So please, give us, give us a convincing answer to, to, to this case uh, uh, again on the EU's ineffectiveness on these three member states, and I'll, well, I will vote for you at the end of the evening. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the gentleman with his arm raised, just there, yes. My name is Christoph Legenthal, and I'm an industrial who runs his own machine tool company, very German. I have a question to you, all of you. The focus on the core of the EU 60 years ago was on economic affairs. And with are good economic affairs, everyone is prosperous and happy. Shouldn't the EU refocus again just on core economics? Thank you very much. And the third question, there was a lady right at the back, I believe. Uh, yes. Right, 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 right at the back. Hello, everyone. I'm Jonkel Hackenberg, also British citizen living in Berlin. So um, my heartstrings are pulled, and I feel exactly the same way as you do, Mr. Clegg. Um, I'm lucky enough that my kids are uh, both British and German, so... We've got that flexibility. So my question is actually building on the, the one that I just heard now. Should it focus on economics as, a, uh, as the EU, or should more emphasis be placed on the other three freedoms, and would that change something? Okay, thank you. Let's just take a bit of time to, to answer those questions. So the, the first um, was for you, Nick Clegg. Well, look, firstly, of course, the, the, the values and the democratic principles of the European Union should be fully enforced where they must. I mean, I sometimes look at the so-called democratic system in my own country and think that we probably shouldn't be allowed to be a member of the European Union if we applied afresh. We have an unelected House of Lords. We have a sort of semi-corrupt cabal of media owners. We have an undemocratic uh, electoral system. You know, money hollows out the way parties work. So, of course, you know, we, should, we should apply it to everybody. Um, uh, and I think, uh, at least I've been encouraged by sort of recent signs that particularly in the face of the... Uh, increasingly authoritarian behaviour of Viktor Orban in, in, in Hungary. There is uh, finally um, moves afoot uh, in the European Council to uh, exact greater pressure on him. I think, however, there is bluntly an ambivalence and an ambiguity here, which is that um, the European Union is not, is not a sort of disembodied state. It is, a, it is really a confederal it's a sort of constant 24-hour, 365-day-a-year uh, process of, of give and take, of negotiation, of compromise, and so on, between 28, soon to be 27, sovereign states. So the moment you expect the European Union as a sort of disembodied entity to be able to, to, be able to aggressively enter into the, into the very heart of the constitutional arrangements of member states, however desirable I might think it is then don't be surprised if people say the European Union is, is, is dramatically overstepping the mark in terms of its intrusion in the domestic, political and, and constitutional affairs of member states. And I think you just have to accept 
that the European Union, it, it, it is a messy compromise. That is what it is. It, I mean, at its very heart, it is a fudge. And I think it's good that it's a fudge. It's exactly what it should be. It should be a fudge, as was explained earlier. It's not, it's not a sort of disembodied spaceship which can sort of zap us with sort of rulings and interventions without us having any control over it. It is owned by all the participant member states. And, of course, that places a, an inevitable constraint on the European Union acting as aggressively or as swiftly as you would like. My only question to you is, would you really like the European Union to have the kind of untrammeled authorities to intervene in domestic politics in the way that you suggest? I suspect it's something that many EU citizens would feel actually in the long run quite uncomfortable with. Um, here is Stoyvanov. Um, the other two questions were focusing on, you know, on whether the EU should focus more just on um, economic affairs. I mean, the, the EU does have uh, mechanisms that it, it could use um, against, in, in Hungary or Poland, for example, um, mechanisms which so far it hasn't. Should, shouldn't we just forget it and leave every country for itself and just bond over economics? I, I think this is a false uh, choice. There is no way you could construct a, a single marketplace without guarantees for equal rule of law. And, and for uh, expectations that what law says and what are the legal standards, including the human rights standards, are going to be equal across this marketplace. So I don't think there is really such a stark um, alternative here. It's, it's rather in order to, to service the goal of common prosperity and a common marketplace, you need these standards in order for it to be functional. So uh, that's my... Um, answer to that. And I don't think, uh, Nick, um, the, the question here is about um, you know, um, uh, respecting uh, sovereignty of, of the states versus absolute ability to intervene. Uh, it's about when you say that the European Commission is the guardian of the treaties, and when you say that uh, a key element of the European Union is a, is a common space of, of common legal standards, in a family, you should be able to find ways, respectable ways, to enforce this. I'm not saying that that, that needs to be uh, done by any harsh intervention, but you at least need to try. When you're not trying, and you're not trying because of, of small, petty uh, comforts, uh, tactical, political comforts, this is really, uh, uh, I think, a, a very dramatic failure of the opinion, promise of the European Union. So uh, that, that's, that's my, my pathos here. Okay. Can I, oh, no, please, please, please. No, no, note that my teammate, uh, as, as Katya said at the beginning, started a movement in Bulgaria called, called Yes Bulgaria, not Yes Brussels, <laughs> by which I think, if I can interpret, he means or they mean that the EU is not about telling us what to do or should not be, but empowering citizens empowering citizens like Christos in Bulgaria by requiring that there be mediator, that there be the right procedures. It's not going to tell the country how to do it specifically. It will empower Christos and all the people around him. Now, if it do, does this, I want to ask our friend who has a machine tool um, um, business. company, business, whether you call this economics or politics, is, this, is it that different? Hasn't the EU always been about some sort of understanding of politics? So the question really for us is more today, 
Now, how do we do politics together? As I was trying to say at the beginning, the EU too often and too much has preempted national politics by saying, oh, we have an EU law. We've come up with this law. It's no more part of the space of politics. That's the problem of the EU. So, you know, you may be asking, well, what about the euro? It's the euro that has done this. Maybe we should do away with the euro. And believe me, many of my compatriots in Greece and in France um, believe that we should. But there I would say, like Karl Offit, you know, he said the euro was perhaps a big mistake, but it would be even a bigger mistake to undo it. And so we have to live with it. And part of the question is how we live with it. Are we really, do we really want to go all the way with our dear Emmanuel Macron and say, because of the euro, we're going to have a centralized EU state, which is going to be a union on everything, uh, and really have a, a ministry and a country EU? No, I don't think so. See, Christos and I, we, we don't like the tyranny of dichotomies, as he himself just said. You know, you are either with us or against us. No, you know, the more you want this EU to survive, the most critical you have to be. And just to close, Katya, I would like to just address the question about the three freedoms of the four freedoms, because that to me is the best example of how the EU can go wrong. There are in Brussels people I call the Ayatollah of free trade. They just kind of go for it. They construct the indivisibility of the four freedoms. You know, if you study the story of the EU, these four freedoms, capital, services, goods, and people, they, they were separate. They emerged separately. They, you know, and economics doesn't tell us they have to go hand in hand. Absolutely, freedom movement of people is great, but, you know, maybe there are limits to it. Maybe we can talk about it. But Brussels says, no, no, no. We have the mantra. We have a religion. Indivisible for freedom. That's the problem with the EU and how it cuts politics in the process. Uh, yeah, I want to disagree with that. You know, essentially, because I, I think uh, Calypso is confusing us here. Uh, it is not the four freedoms, it's three plus one. No, you don't want to argue that there should only be freedom of capital, of goods and services, but no freedom of people, for people. I'm not arguing that. Well, but you, you, you were making the point. You know, I think the, the indivisibility argument only comes about to say, now, if we, for the purpose of, uh, of prospering, of growing, you know, of, of uh, uh, helping the European economy to compete effectively, if we then tear down the walls for goods, services, and capital, don't we owe it to the people to tear down the walls for mobility as well? So I think the insistence on the four freedoms essentially is this insistence on the fourth freedom, which is the freedom of mobility of people, because it shouldn't just be the money that is free to travel and the goods, but it should also be the people. So that's, I think, that we should not, we should not overlook. Let me, let me add to, to the question about the core of economics. Let's not overlook that the treaties of Rome were plan B. No? Plan A was security, was to, to never allow another Second World War again. And it was about uh, kind of establishing a common control over the war industries of, of coal and steel. And then it was about creating a common defense, the European defense community. And in order to have that, there was the need to create a European political community. 
it didn't work out. It didn't get ratified. The French National Assembly voted it down because the pressure was, was not strong enough. So, you know, then what? And so the, the second best option was, okay, if, if our plan A, security, a political union, didn't work out, maybe we can get there by focusing on economics, on the prosperity side of things. And I think the EU has done that uh, quite successfully. But as we do this, and as we progress, we find out that actually prosperity and security are the higher your level of prosperity, <coughs> the more sensitive you become uh, to security. Because security is reliability. Security means actually to be able to, to enjoy the benefits of the prosperity that you have achieved. Security, after all, is uh, the focus on uh, how can we be uh, flourishing and be prosperous tomorrow. So I believe that, that uh, the, the raison d'etre of this process uh, has another indivisibility over the long term, and that is uh, uh, security as the other side of prosperity. And I think the challenge today is how do we do this um, uh, when... Uh, challenged with the sort of migratory flows uh, that we're experiencing? How do we create a, a, a decent, humane, but at the same time effective border management system? Now, how do we uh, take care of our own security in an environment where less and less of those actors which have claimed a principal role in our security are pulling back? So I think that is, is legitimately uh, a concern, an interest of European policymaking, and it is not detached from, from what you describe, rightly so, as the core of integration, is not detached from the prosperity argument. <coughs> and here it comes, the, the, the result of the vote. Before thank you so much. <laughs> if, I, if I can just... Um, thank you so much. If I can just remind you um, how you voted before this debate. So... Uh, 23 of you, 23% of you, sorry, um, were for the motion that the EU is failing the citizens of Europe. 46% of you were against the motion, and 31% of you uh, were undecided. And let's see now. Okay. Well, <laughs> after our proceedings tonight, 76% of you um, in this room are against the motion. Twenty-two percent for the motion, and two uh, percent undecided. So I have to say, I mean, congratulations, sirs. But on the other hand, congratulations to all of you because there were lots of swing voters uh, here who had no idea, and they've all made up their minds. So well done, all of our debaters tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all of you uh, for coming. Viel herzlichen Dank for the very first Intelligence Squared here in Germany, the first of many, um, and, uh, and we will be delighted to see you all um, again. So thank you very much and good evening.